Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 30 years of law enforcement analysis experience. He was an analyst in the Army. He was also a police officer with the San Diego Police Department and managed the Crime and Intelligence Unit with the San Diego Sheriff's Department. He's also spent 10 years in the private sector as a consultant, where all along his heart has been in GIS. Representing the podcast's 200th episode, please welcome Mr. Kurt Smith. Kurt, how are we doing? Yeah, I'm doing great, Jason. I'm not sure I deserve that much fanfare, but I am honored and excited. And I got to say a little nervous being here for a big round number episode, not a not a 10 round number, but a hundred round number. I even went back and listened to you on the hundredth and you're being the guest here for number 100. So I'm honored and I'm happy to be here. Oh, yes. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been too long. I'm, I'm glad we were able to do this. It's one of those deals I often talk about with the uh, conferences. You go if you go to a conference uh, on a regular basis every year, you just see the same faces, and then it turns into a family reunion type thing feeling, and then all of a sudden stuff happens, and then you don't see people for a long period of time. So that's what I felt like has been with us. It's like I went from seeing you every year to now. I don't think I've seen you now for a good five plus years. So I am is awesome to get to have you on the prep call and get caught up a little bit with you. Yeah, good to be here. I it's the I feel the same way and conferences and convening are so important and I I've allowed myself to kind of get trapped a little more into the technology cycles and circles over the last couple of years, and it has tugged at my heartstrings. <laughs> maybe, maybe question some choices because <laughs> I talk technology, but at the end of the day, as we all know, it's all a people business, and uh, getting together with your peeps is super, super <laughs> important. Nice. All right, let's start from the beginning. How did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Yeah, I was professionalized as an analyst in the Army. I had the good, very good fortune when I joined the Army to get into the intelligence community and the even better fortune to actually get to do what I was trained to do while I was on active duty in the late 80s and the early 90s. But coming out of that and into the reserves and back into college with a focus on geography and economics, I had more of an interest in finding a, uh, a home, a connection to a community. And I was going to college in Texas and started looking at what data, what could I do with data for a geography course and just cold called Dallas PD. Hmm. Somehow or another, Mark Stallo was behind all this, <laughs> I know, although I didn't really know him at the time. I remember his name getting referenced, et cetera, but I just, I did a uh, little research project looking at uh, seasonality of assaults and made some recommendations and really found a lot of edge effects in the geography of uh, patrol beats and 
I just happened to have that experience. And at the same time, another one of my buddies coming out of the army and you know, special operations side of stuff, a very energetic person was graduating from the police academy down in Austin. And I went down and attended his uh, graduation. And I just looked at all of it and said, you know, I can be interested in analytics and technology and I can get engaged in uh, public safety and not necessarily be in an office for the rest of my my 20s and maybe early 30s. <laughs> and GI, GIS was the kind of, to me, the linchpin between the uh, skills and interests and uh, things that I had from the Army and the Army side and this kind of uh, stepping stone into public safety. And, you know, I actually, when I went out to San Diego, as my wife is from there and that's um, where I needed to be, cold introduced myself into the crime analysis unit at uh, San Diego Police Department before before I did anything else. So I was I was an oddball. I was a person with a application in to be hired as a police officer, but I was sitting with Pat Drummy way back in the day <laughs> and uh, the folks at the crime analysis unit at San Diego PD and continued to do law enforcement analysis related things all the way through from from the time that I first got a data set standing in the lobby at Dallas PD on a floppy disk to uh, <laughs> to today. People still send me stuff. Your path reminds me a little bit of Sean Bear in that he was an analyst, knew data, and then he decided to be an officer later. And so I find that a fascinating bit with you is that all along you're wanting to get into the GIS data field, but you take the path of being an officer. When you're going through that how was the acclimation? You obviously were in the army, so it wasn't too rude of awakening. But in terms of being an officer, like how did that? How did you get acclimated to that? My wife would tell you, if Teresa were <laughs> were on the call with us, uh, my wife would tell you that that I I've been the same person all along. So going into policing was, she would also tell you, surprising to her and and probably a lot of my friends. I. I did not grow up. I was not a person that grew up with, with a law family or mm -hmm. with with an intent of going into law enforcement. But I did have friends that that joined, and and frankly, again, it comes back to the people part of the business. Uh, when I when I was originally looking at Dallas PD data, I could see kind of the human behavior in it. And as I talked to some of the folks at Dallas PD, they described to me or I appreciated some of the context and the decisions they had to make. And I, and I realized CAD is CAD, arrest and crime reports are arrest and crime reports. But it, in all that is such a context of choices and decisions. To me, I, I looked at all that and said, I want to be where the data is collected. I want to collect the data. I, I want to be the dot on the map. I want to put my own dots on the map and understand what it really means to make those, those decisions in a context of communicating with people. Maybe that's the, the economics, the choices, choices and incentives uh, side of my interests beyond the technology itself. But it just, it's hard to explain, Jason, that just the, the uh, collection of all those things to me were just intensely interesting. And it compelled me to say, I'll go to the academy. I was a very fortunate uh, to be uh, going to the academy was not a big physical challenge, or I was, I was, again, a very fortunate person. I was much healthier and thinner. <laughs> I, in fact, I like to say, I don't think of that as 30 years ago. I think of it as 30, pound, 30 pounds ago. <laughs> I, count, I count my time in pounds, not years. 
but it it really goes back to the people connection part i the data was interesting or the technology was interesting to me but the people part and how to how to make choices and decisions and way back way back at that time i looked at all of it and advocated for and evangelized for hey folks there's this thing called gis and i think it's going to become an important way with with how we you know use data support decisions and and it's just going to become a part of our daily life work and, and home and and i think that it has from if you think back to was a beta at at that time it was a beta i got a beta release from esri of arcview and <laughs> poked and prodded at it and the world has changed a lot since 1993 so yeah well, and you do, you are definitely well ahead of the curve because I've talked to analysts on the show when they, once they were able to show some officers that this is why it's important to get the report writing correct and get the data correct. Because on yeah. our, on the analysis side of the fence, all that information is being studied. And right. so, and once they see like, oh, you know, someone's actually reading this, somebody is actually doing something with this data, you get more people on board. Well, I'll tell you, let me, let me use uh, you saying that as an opportunity to drop in a lesson learned uh, or a little, a little quip that I like to turn with people. And that's, if you want timely, accurate, and complete data, turn the people who are collecting the data into customers of their own data. When I... I started into it saying, I want to be a dot on the map. And and then over time, I realized as I, I dragged a laptop to the field before we had laptops and, and had ArcView and Arc Explorer and all that kind of stuff. But I, I realized quickly a map on the wall in the briefing room is is a good and solid cornerstone for conversation. But you got to you got to make it a little more personal than that if if and when you can turn people into customers of their own data. And when they look at the map, they'll say, I want my dot to be accurate or I need my dot to be accurate, depending depending on on how it's used. A lot of times we aggregate stuff up and we apply so much statistic to it mm -hmm. that we lose the connection between the data and the dude that collected it. The person that collected it and the data itself, you've got to turn people into customers of their own data and you'll see the timely, accurate and complete factors of your data increase wildly. Yeah. Now, when you're an officer, it's still written reports, right? It's not, Third, it's yeah. not to the, you're yeah, going so. in, in the vehicles and, and, and whatnot. So. Correct. Correct. And I, I always refer back to San Diego PD. I really, I went through the academy as a deputy sheriff in San Diego and did my field qualification as a, as a law enforcement deputy with the sheriff's department. We had two radio primary and a primary and a tactical frequency on the radio and a, a clipboard and a pen. And, and you had to catch, you had to catch everything. The first transmission on the radio because you didn't want to ask the uh, dispatcher to, to repeat it and went to the academy and like all deputy sheriffs law enforcement at the time went straight to the jail and worked in the jail for about nine months and very quickly i very quickly got connected with the sheriff's crime analysis which was uh, mostly administrative at the time and and plugged into a couple of things but the as folks then the manager of the unit then shared with me their the vision was not to grow or increase the use of GIS. They saw GIS as something that they subcontracted out to the Association of Governments. If they needed a big map printed or their recurring map stuff, they they brought in under contract a GIS person from the uh, regional Association of Governments. Mm -hmm. And I looked at that and uh, uh, 
I went over to San Diego PD and talked with uh, the crime analysis folks there again and just kind of compared visions um, at the time. It was a, it was a moment in time um, and made the choice to um, lateral over to San Diego Police Department. That happened. Um, and San Diego Police Department had very the very earliest mobile data terminals, amber flashing in the uh, car and and uh, stuff like that at the time. So, but what they had behind the scenes was a big and deep commitment to technology and an expectation that the crime analysts used the GIS and data tools that were provided to them, and they and they were doing a great job, just fantastic. So nice. that, that that to me was attractive. And as a cop, then I had an opportunity to see and map and and engage and understand how my work fit into the bigger context, and then gain an understanding from that. So. Hmm. As you start working with the crime analysis unit there at San Diego and you're implementing, getting GIS implemented, what problems are you trying to solve there? Well, let me let me just be clear. I think at the time, by this point, 1995, San Diego Police Department hosted the POP conference every year, mm-hmm. uh, super involved in the evolution of uh, community policing. And a lot of that really, at the department, really stood on the shoulders of a lot of the crime analysts um, mm-hmm. that were there. Dina bowman Jamison, who's been on the city GIS side for a long time now, had the business case. And just for GIS, they, they really had, for a law enforcement agency, a, a really advanced not just use of, but vision for GIS. So it made it very easy for me as a police officer to get involved with and and support that. I worked in a couple of different patrol commands. And so what I started looking at in, in collaboration and in support of, and with the intent to extend the effect of the crime analysis unit products in my patrol areas, I took that problem solving focus. So I asked what what data do we have and in what other ways can we map it rather than patrol area summaries aggregated to the patrol area i started to look at beyond part one crime beyond the part two crime and really see an understanding of calls for service as the primary operational data source for problem solving that fundamental problem solving question of why here and why not there just to me came to life on the call by call basis. And this this was a this was at a time where we were still, you know, we would get an address and maybe a Thomas Brothers map book <laughs> reference. So for all the younger than me's out there, Thomas Brothers was a, a binder map. And so you'd get something like, and I could probably still rattle off 1249 B4. This is not battleship. This is calls for service. <laughs> and your address at 1249 B4, somewhere in that little grid of 1249 B4, you'd flip to 1249 page of your Thomas Brothers guide and go to B4 on the grid. And your your address that you're looking for is somewhere in that. And then you could kind of pick it out. That's how we, that's how we navigated. But starting to think about that, uh, starting to then ask why here and why not there? Uh, and apply some of the standard language and thought around problem solving to the way we use the data, rather than people talking about crime going up or going down and this this sort of thing and that sort of thing. My view on it was, if we can really hit and understand the disorder or the things that are uh, simmering that reflect or are revealed in calls for service, then uh, maybe we can find other ways to uh, reduce or prevent crime before we have to deal with the crime getting to the map. So a little, a little challenging to, to even kind of explain that now, but I, I'm sure most 
the listeners here understand that. But at the time, that was that wasn't the way we were necessarily thinking or doing things. And uh, so I tried to bring that field experience and the literally take the data to the field to just to to go a little bit deeper and actually answer your question. Mm-hmm. At first, it was driven by my own interests and the how to understand my work, my team's work, and the context of the community that we were in. And I did that in a couple of different patrol commands and really found the some interesting things in the data that told us how to make decisions and, and what to do with that information. And then I went from patrol command to a citywide neighborhood policing team, which it was a team of six officers and a sergeant. We reported directly to an assistant chief, John Welter, phenomenal police leader. And under Chief Welter, we as a policing squad, uniform policing squad, went into patrol areas, service areas, one month at a time. And so in a service area, there's six patrol squads. And each of the six officers on the team that I was on would divide up and work with one squad for the whole month. I always had graveyard shift because I had the highest ID number, had the least least seniority. Um, But we would work for three weeks, partnered up with every different cop on the squad at least once, um, most of them twice, uh, and then spend one week with the sergeant. But we came to a service area having been briefed up by crime analysis, given additional data, those sorts of things. I had uh, ArcView, so I would receive the data itself and then work up problem locations, problem callers, take take the problem analysis that the crime analyst had provided and then make it more specific to each of the teams, the times of day and going out to the actual addresses. And the focus and the intent on all that was to, in a data-driven way, set and act on priorities in the field and get team-level problem solving supported and to occur. And so the time that I spent doing that after going from an active patrol command and having had Andy Mills, who's the police chief a couple of different places, but he's at Palm Springs now, the most thoughtful, energetic police leader I ever worked for. And that's not to detract from any of the great folks that I've had a great opportunity to work for, but just kind of that drive I experienced in about two years. I think I partnered up with in, in excess of 50 different officers and rode in the field with about a dozen different sergeants and worked with a number of different lieutenants. And it was like a big fast forward. Like what I said earlier about wanting to go to the field and be the data and collect the data and then, and then understand it, it just took the pace of observation and experience being in a patrol command and kind of kicked it into hyperspeed uh, because I saw so many different ways people were making decisions and so many different ways people were completing a, a police report or handling or dispoing a radio call. And I was leaned forward into getting people to be as consistent as possible in the way that we had been trained and and to support the sergeants and understanding that when they approved a report or reviewed how people had disposed stuff, why it was so important that the that the accuracy in their work and the consistency of their work reinforced that in their officers because it all came through in the data. So yeah, that's that's so ahead of your time. <laughs> like it really is. Like there's, I yeah. mean, when you consider when you're considering that this is the '90s, if you're right, somebody listening to this now, this is par for the course in today's standards, but not in the late '90s, certainly. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, it was appreciated. I think wasn't always valued. 
And it certainly did not lead to me having comfort or recognition or any of the other things that, frankly, I never really sought. Anyway, yeah. I, comfortable is the most dangerous place to be, I like to say as well. I'll keep dropping in my little uh, sayings that yeah. folks that I've worked with over the years have heard. <laughs> but comfortable is, comfortable is the most dangerous place to be. Um, yeah. uh, absent is a close second to that. But I didn't seek comfort. Mm-hmm. And in reflection now, I, if I, had, I guess if I had understood or thought about it more, I would have done a better job of trying to make a connection between the work we were doing in the field and how to how to understand it or capture it academically or in a more practical sense. I go forward a couple of years and and I started to realize really from having the good fortune of getting to work with the Crime Mapping Research Center, Nancy Levine, who's now the head of the MIJ, mm-hmm. had the crime mapping research and and of course being in San Diego, I knew and became friends with Julie Wartell. I say friends, I never get, I never get to see any more, but Julie is, I don't, I don't think deeply about any data or research or anything without in my mind, making some reference to something Julie uh, taught or (laughs) shared with me or something over the years. So that same time that I was in the field doing that stuff uh, that I just described with the neighborhood policing team, I was also then very, very fortunate to get introduced uh, because of that work by Julie to her her colleague at the time and still Liz Groff and to go to a crime mapping conference and meet Nancy. And at the same time, San Diego was hosting the pop conferences and all this stuff. It was just, it was just a <laughs> swirl of, of activity. And in the middle of it, I was trying to work graveyards and handle 911 calls. So. Oh, wow. But this probably is or kind of leads into your decision to leave the police work and go on to Redlands. Yes. So from Presenting at one of the conferences, the police chief at Redlands, Jim Beerman, who a lot of folks know, who I hold in the highest regard, uh, a lot of folks know him as the he was the director of the uh, police foundation for several years, and a lot of folks know him from his time at, at San Diego Police as the chief. I was by that point in 2003 working in the operations unit at uh, San Diego PD. Still working closely with crime analysis, had taken a lot of the GIS stuff and translated it over to emergency management use. I was on the city's critical incident management uh, team, and we really got mapping a little bit more of an operational connection to the role of mapping in the uh, Department Operations Center and EOC and those sorts of things. But as that evolved, I got a call one day while I was at work, and it was Chief Beerman, Jim, and Jim said, hey, I've, we've got some grants. Would you come up and uh, have coffee with me? I want to get your uh, opinion on some of these things because a lot of it was mapping stuff. And some of it, Julie Wartell had managed up to that point. And so I was aware of it. And I went up and met with Jim and they had several current grants, but then he had kind of a lineup of, of additional grants and earmarks that they expected to receive. And uh, it looked like the right next kind of work. And so Jim asked if I would help them. And I said yes, under contract. And I took a um, leave of of absence for several months from San Diego police and went up to Redlands and worked on a compass project. Folks who may know Phil Milky. Phil was up there. I used to tell Phil, come back from Theoryville and get a little work done here in Redlands. 
<laughs> you can go back to Theoryville on some of that stuff, but did that under a contract and then returned to San Diego PD briefly from the leave of absence. And just when I when I returned to San Diego PD, the city of Redlands called and said, hey, we've we've turned the uh, role that you created into a director's position. Would you be interested in uh, appointment to it? For me, it was the right uh, transition point. I, I kind of mm-hmm. looked down the road and said, I know what a police career is going to look like. What does a career in policing look like if, if I kind of lean forward into the crime analysis and technology side and give up uh, continuing on the path as a sworn peace officer and made the decision to do that? Because yeah. it, it was really more closely aligned with why I came into policing in the first place mm-hmm. than the things that, that were further down you know, the road ahead of me if I stayed in a, in a sworn role, at least at the time. And again, that was 20 years ago. So it may <laughs> be hard for folks to look back and they're like, well, ugh, why would you do that? Well, it, yeah. that then is a different that than that now uh, mm-hmm. because positions and technology and stuff have changed so much over the last 20 years. But yeah. I went to Redlands and Redlands had... Crime analysis, high-tech crime investigations with the detective and technology, mm-hmm. and we were imp- we were implementing a uh, dispatch system. That was really the big the the that technical role of implementing a dispatch system was was really the big thing that was uh, right in front of them that they that they wanted me up there to do. So yeah, but this this sounds like a position created specifically for you, as as you mentioned, it's the technology piece, but you've spent your time building up with those around you different ways to problem solve and use the data you get this position here and it's a nice mixture of everything that you've mentioned thus far so and plus you have the advantage of being an officer so you get that officer speak in there and come in to that position with a lot of lack of better word clout like a lot of you well established yourself to that point of being the right person for the job it it was it was unique and and again foundationally i was prepared for it through my own experience in a lot of unique ways now the the cornerstone of that role really came from the grant work leading up to it and so again you hear me say julie wortel's name 50 more times um, today but Julie had done a just remarkable job bringing together this regional grant work that was underway and and established that and matured it. And and then I took my turn at that part of the grant and I made it more specific to Redlands, more operationally engaged directly with Redlands. Mm-hmm. And that exposed me to not just the chief, but the functional day-to-day workings of the department and sometime with the with the command staff and with the officers. So when I when I went to Redlands, not in a grant role, but in the director's role in the police department. It it was one that was I would say very unique because I had I guess the trust of the command staff to have the crime analysis, but to also take on technology, the new CAD project, and to have a detective assigned, which I'm sure led to a lot of teeth gritting, but <laughs> and with no other direction than figure out what it means to for us to get into the cyber cyberspace, the sexting that was going on, and the eBay fraud which there was so much of, it was ridiculous, mm-hmm. but also to child porn and child sex crimes. It, 
it was just a mix of things that I was well uh, prepared for. And we got a lot of forward motion and a lot of support, both from the chief, but also for folks that don't know, Redlands is also the hometown of Esri. Mm -hmm. And by that point, Esri had let me run a little law enforcement booth in the public safety showcase uh, for several years up to that point. And so I had a connection with Esri too, mm -hmm. and and kind of the brain power there and, and getting what Phil was working on inside the department lined up with what Esri was doing in the public safety side and, and use of basically any technology they had, we had access to. So it, again, I, too many different factors, but it was a very unique, unique fit for me to go up there. Yeah, it sounds once again like you found yourself in the perfect storm. Yeah, it, you know, it did. And, and I recognized that at the time. It really was just a, a remarkable, uh, it was a really remarkable place to be. In it, there was that connection back to the National Institute of Justice and the cops office as well, mm -hmm. because Redlands had a lot of benefit of interest and support from Congress in the form of grants and earmarks, which if anybody's ever had an earmark, they understand it's still a grant. You still have to go through every bit of documentation and, and support and everything else for it. And I took that all uh, very, very seriously. And from that came great relationships in the work uh, back to uh, DOJ, COPS Office, Police Foundation as a, a research partner, Urban Institute as a research partner, and uh, to the NIJ uh, for managing a lot of the, the earmarks. So fundamentally, I looked at, I grew up in Champaign, Illinois, just outside of Champaign. And I looked at my experience at San Diego Police Department and kind of the, the nature of policing in Southern California and policing in the department uh, size of San Diego PD. And when I went to Redlands, frankly, Redlands Police Department and the city of Redlands at 70,000 people is a lot more like most police departments in the country than San Diego Police was or LAPD or Vegas Metro or Miami or pick any, any bigger city, Nashville, Chicago, pick a city. The bigger cities have different process in place, just like businesses. You know, it's a different size and scope. It's a different set of process. It's still policing in the middle of mm -hmm. all of it. But for me, that same interest that brought me into policing in the first place made it very attractive to go to Redlands and support and work with the uh, size and scope and the community connection that happens uh, in a department that size and in a city that size. Um, yeah. So to me, to me, again, very intensely interesting from a geographic and probably as a geographer. So Yeah, there's something to be said about having the right amount of data to wrap your head around. Like, I always wonder with these bigger cities, like there's not a human that could consume all that data to really have a true picture of the city's crime. If you're just getting way, just way too many too much data. I want to go back to the CAD. I'm curious as you look back at the implementation, how did that process go and what did you learn from the, that implementation? Let me let me start by saying we it was a project that finished on time and on budget. Nice. I just want anybody who's ever been involved <laughs> in a CAD project. I just want to say if you've done it, other people need to hear about it, you know, and if you if if you think that's impossible, it can it rarely happens and it really can uh, be done. But Jason, it goes just to the same comment that you made a moment mm -hmm. ago about at that scope and scale, the, the CAD project was something that, that we could define and engage the 
stakeholders and the people working on the project and have the flexibility to adapt to some of the business process of the solution that we selected rather than trying to make or turn a an existing CAD product into something that was overly redlandized per se. So we, I think we did a good job focusing on the right things, focusing on the value and, and the value add of the data. So from the, from the get-go, designing in the data you know, schema and the attributes, the selections, the accessibility of the operational data and the resulting records data for use by the crime analysts, that was all really built into the front end. It was not a, a we'll, we'll figure that out later. Or we'll historical data, and you didn't contract for historical data, right? It, mm-hmm. Like all that <laughs> stuff, we took care of all that stuff up front. It didn't make it, it didn't necessarily make it any easier, but it, what mm-hmm. we took uh, was a focus on the safety, community officer safety aspects of the way the CAD system itself worked. And then as a very, very close second, the value of the data, the integrity and value of the data in the system, both for investigations and prosecution, but for analysis of any and all factors that we would want to do. And and of course, having the GIS at the middle of it, we were able to, to bring people together and they I think they really understood what the CAD system was supposed to do, not just mm. what a what what a CAD system does, but what this CAD system was supposed to do. And it and I don't know what the Redlands is is using now, but it had the, the it may still be the same system in use. I I'd have to call Amy and ask her. <laughs> <laughs> or you mentioned earlier, I mentioned Sean earlier and, and kind of his transition from Street Cop and Tempe and then doing analysis and developing technology and stuff like that. Redlands, uh, we had a great benefit at Redlands. Jim Beerman, fantastic chief. Mm. But in the middle of that at the time was Chris Catron, who Chris had been the crime analyst for Redlands. And when he got the bug and went to the academy and, mm. and became a, a police officer there, he stayed in that in that department. In fact, he stayed all the way through being uh, chief last year. He was he retired about this time last year, if I recall. But they, we had that benefit of, of people on the different teams. Chris was a detective at the time. The chief set the direction. The deputy chief knew the existing CAD system. Everybody valued the data that came out of it. And it, it let us put into place something that we knew could support the, the kind of policing that Redlands as a community expected and deserved. So mm-hmm. as a not kind of a non-analyst outcome, but back to the my comment earlier of making people customers of their own data. CAD system goes into place. Everybody talks about, oh, let's do this fancy routing stuff and this and that. And it, cops that work in an area get an address. Uh, rarely do they need the computer to tell them how to get there faster than they are. <laughs> uh, they, yeah. they, they have to beat knowledge, right? But Mm-hmm. What what we did with Redlands was extend the GIS to the mobile part in ways that even the company itself didn't realize or hadn't done before. And so we got the real-time, real-time awareness out to the field, not just of calls being dispatched to individual officers in their current status, but of calls that were holding and we, and we kind of baked in some other data that was available in the field. And while our response time to emergency calls uh, dropped a little bit. They were already so good. It was hard to squeeze any more juice from that uh, lemon. Mm-hmm. What really fundamentally changed when we got the right information and analysis to briefing and then the right data available through that same system that supported that into the field uh, was the response time to non-emergency calls dropped from 44 minutes 
to 28 minutes, which meant anybody that called, and I, and I attribute that not just to the CAD system, I attribute it to the people valuing the data and the people engaging the, the priorities and the patterns and the other information coming from crime analysis so that they knew how then to interpret uh, what was coming to them through this new system that was implemented. And, and it just turned into, again, not just timely, accurate, and complete data, but better service to the Redlands community. You didn't do the dishes? Well, no, I was busy doing other chores. But my completed chores is up five in the last seven days. Yeah, but you're still down 13 over the last 28 days. Well, I see your shopping purchases is up 20% this month. My spending is still down year to date. In fact, my black shoe purchases are half of what they were this time last year. Well, thank goodness last year wasn't a normal year. Plus, I bought you new underwear, so your clothes purchases is up 40% this month compared to last month. Oh, wait. There were no clothes purchases the previous month, Miss Perfect. I didn't know you had the ability to divide by zero. You should be happy. Your temperature-led policing program has worked great in this house. I have not touched your precious thermostat in the last six months. Millions of homes in the U.S. are impacted by people wanting to be comfortable in their homes. Temperature-led policing control the temperature, control the cost. Hi, this is Jeffrey Vandersip, and I'm going to tell you about a couple of my pet peeves. Pet peeve number one is the size of parking lots at grocery stores. They create these parking lots for Yugos, and yet everybody is now driving a Ford F-150, and you can't fit in anything, or if you do, you're banging the doors of your neighbors. Pet peeve number two is the little button in cars that open the fuel filler door seems to be in the most oddest of places. And whenever I go somewhere else and I rent a car and I have to go to the gas station for the first time, I spend a half hour trying to figure out how to open the fuel filler door. Uh, pet peeve number three is just packaging generally with things that you get in the mail. It's like Russian nesting dolls. You've got a box and inside that box is another box. Inside that is another box. Inside that is a bubble wrap. And then you get to like a little piece of whatever, which is the thing actually sent. And finally, and again, betraying my age here, the screen filters that people use in their social media, everybody kind of looks like somebody out of Avatar. I mean, what's up with that? Let's actually move on to you moving on to San Diego Sheriff's Department. Sure. It's, it's, I find it fascinating because you're just we were just talking about size and how Redlands is the right size. Well, I don't particularly know the dimensions of the county, but I'm guessing this is this is quite a big area that you, that you're going into to work. Uh, yes, San Diego Sheriff's Department was a, a transition back to San Diego, back to the San Diego area. As I mentioned, I had been a deputy sheriff briefly before going to San Diego PD years before, and while I was at San Diego PD over the years, I continued a connection and uh, continued to work with uh, folks at the Sheriff's Department. I, my primary connection all along was really Tony Ray, who retired last year. He was the interim uh, sheriff up until the last election. So 
And Tony's the director at uh, Argus, now the Regional Justice Information System. Tony and I stood shoulder to shoulder in the academy, and and Tony heard me tell everybody in the academy that there was this GIS thing that was going to be a big deal years earlier. So (laughs) over the years, as Tony would tell you if he were on the call, he would say he just wanted to know how to map out where graffiti was happening. So he had (laughs) called me. He had called me once, and it just turned into a lot more than that. But uh, in the sheriff's department, I had really great relationships, and they, while I was at Redlands, they had an intent to reopen crime analysis manager's role that had been closed for about a decade. They had distributed the crime analysts for the most part across all the different uh, patrol commands. And of course, the sheriff's department serves a huge rural and backcountry area, but they're also the contract police provider for eight or nine of the of the cities in San Diego. So there's just a really a a mix of kind of different kinds of policing that they provide. And they had about a dozen crime analysts that were spread across the major commands and then two crime analysts at uh, headquarters. And again, phone rang one day and the law enforcement administration bureau, one of the lieutenants there, for anybody that knows San Diego, I'll say his name. It was Jim Duffy called and said, we're opening this manager's position and your name keeps coming up. We just want to make sure that you're, <laughs> if, if you're not looking for a job and are interested, uh, please take a look, you know, when at the announcement that's coming out. I said, all right. And so kids were starting in the middle school. My wife, who's an only child, wanted to be back a little closer to her parents mm-hmm. in San Diego. And it was an opportunity for me to come full circle back to the, the agency that gave me a chance to start into uh, uh, mm-hmm. a law enforcement career. So I interviewed and was selected. And it was a just, I got to say, fantastic experience. What a what a remarkable group of folks I got to work with at uh, San Diego Sheriff. The analysts, just that's my family. Everybody I've also I've worked with, but the folks at San Diego Sheriff, boy, we went through some the, the kinds of ups and downs that really uh, give you the deep the deep connection to each other that is just irreplaceable in this life. Hmm. So how many analysts did you manage? Oh well somebody is gonna correct me on this. Uh-huh. Molly Duker will probably knows exactly and can correct me on this. Um, I think I think we were at nine, and then we were at twelve, um, and and then I kind of lost count uh, because I was also given the responsibility to start organizing and administering the crime prevention specialists who had been distributed across all the uh, commands as well. And that took, I think, the unit up to 28. But and, and I give credit to the crime prevention specialists because they were the ones that went out and did community meetings and site surveys. They worked directly with their you know, sergeants and lieutenants in their command areas and oftentimes were the ones uh, taking or receiving what the crime analysts were doing and helping to turn it into decisions within the command or turn it into engagement in the community to prevent crime. So big props to them. And in that, in that sense, a lot of them really picked up and began running with analytical skills themselves out of interest. So, mm. so uh, what kind of, what kind of things were you getting into that made this unit meld together and become a family? Well, I set, I set the tone at forum experiences I had elsewhere, but in particularly running a unit in the army that there, there was, there were a lot of challenges and the challenges were in how people's titles were defined, uh, the close and strong connection that people had between their patrol commands they were assigned to and that that chain of command. And now who's this at headquarters and why do we even have to answer the call kind of stuff. And so I kind of level set 
by sharing with folks my fundamental belief, and that's that we we can't control this world, but what we can control is how well we treat each other. Mm -hmm. And as analysts, we tend to be very analytically minded, and therefore, oftentimes, we like to critique others and ourselves. And, you know, to really operate as a team and as a unit, we've got to have that honest communication, but we also have to have the self-control to treat each other well. And so kind of help, I think, establish a unit level culture um, in a place where, where a unit hadn't uh, necessarily been for a while. And I threw some challenges at them, the 60 steps, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like we're going to start walking through those. There's a reason that, that, that those 60 steps exist and we're going to mm -hmm. be problem focused in what we do. I also threw down the challenge. This was 2008 or so that if you think your job as an analyst is to provide a number at the bottom of a page, your job's going to get replaced by a computer. Your role as an analyst is to provide context and to make a connection between the data and the decisions uh, that are being made by by interpreting, providing context, anticipating the next questions, those sorts of things. And so the big challenge was to be the analyst, take on the writing skills, take on dealing with putting timely data into, into context, and, and in, in support of them, recruited and engaged and ensured that they had data and the data that they really needed to support their jobs. And I tried to lead by example a little bit. We established a, a reporting process that everybody, it just became a very self-supporting thing. And, that, and the interests and the skills that the different analysts had, we set up ways so that those, those strengths that existed across the team really got shared. And it, territoriality, and the defensiveness, the and this is that's not my job was not mm -hmm. something that that was not something that people said. Mm -hmm. And but fundamentally, it was getting the right data into their hands so that they could deliver the kind of analysis that their commands really needed. And, and relationships grew, and good things got better, and things that weren't as good got good. And we moved mm -hmm. moved forward from there. Yeah. Before we get to your analyst badge story, I do want to ask you about uh, maybe a problem. Uh, a pop project maybe you had during this time. Was there a particular one you think of that uh, your team was really able to make a dent into in terms of a problem? During during that particular time uh, at San Diego Sheriff in mid-2008, we hit the Great Recession. I went there in April of 2008. By the end of 2008, we had cut budgets 15% across the board, hiring freeze, no new no new technology. It was the it was we were leading into the Great Recession, and it was real and impactful on communities we served. And terms like perfect storm were being applied to what was going <laughs> to happen to well, it was what was going to happen to crime because unemployment was going to go crazy. And in California, we had criminal justice realignment, so we had an unprecedented return of. Our, Release of people to parole, return of people from state prison to county jails, which meant displacing the ability to book, you know, lower offenses into jail. So our, we had a higher offender load. So in a nutshell, with all that rambling lead up, we within the unit recognized the need to do a better and more timely job of dealing with offender information, the awareness of offender information and, and how we engaged offender information. And so I said, we're going to do something and we're going to call it 
TKO, tracking known, <laughs> tracking known offenders, but it was also a play on words for a technical knockout, right? So we're going to use technology to knock out some of this growing, foreseeably growing offender problem. It was not something that anybody assigned to us. It came from our, our collective recognition of what was needed. And so we began using our available data, picked up the pace, picked up the focus and built out what we called a TKO, tracking known mm -hmm. offender uh, database. It, it went on and other people took it to much higher levels and matured it more into SD Fusion and some other stuff uh, down the road in the department, particularly San Diego Sheriff's technology unit that Yosh Ashish Kakad leads. Just have done great things over the years from where we started with that. And then, of course, you know, people that, that followed me after I left, such as Noah and <laughs> several several other people. So we, we put tracking known offenders into place. And what that led to was our ability to support more timely turnaround on crime patterns and associating offenders with it. So maybe three really brief examples of that. Jeff Anderson was in Encinitas and car break-ins popped up. There wasn't any suspect information, but they were a strong and growing pattern. And from the TKO database, uh, Jeff was able to rapidly uh, support identification of a known offender in the area who on his parole follow-up then by the deputies at his house was found to not only have been responsible for the crimes in their jurisdiction, but dozens and dozens and dozens of crimes across other uh, jurisdictions as well. Okay. And that analysts do that kind of thing all the time at that time. And in this instance, we just made it easier so that it can become a more regular part of the review patterns and cases. Darcy Brown was up at Vista at a sex crime what looked like the front end of a sex crime series. And she used the TKO data to help identify and then eliminate another a number of potential suspects. And in that instance, for folks that aren't familiar with San Diego, Vista is right next to uh, Marine Corps base. In that instance, Darcy established the pattern, forecasted the next event, took her maps and, and got the support of her command to assign a, a patrol squad at the beginning of the shift during the overlap period to go where she said they needed to go and to look for what she said they needed to look for. They went out and within 10 minutes of getting in the area, they found a suspect that matched kind of the fusion of information that Darcy had provided. And the guy admitted guilt at the curbside and prevented that those sexual assaults from advancing to what looked like was going to be rape or rape and, and other uh, more violent crimes. So, hmm. and then there's others. These are again. It just it sounds like the kind of work that analysts uh, do and love to do. But what we did with TKO was uh, intentionally create a foundation so that the analysts were having to spend less time gathering and processing the offender data. It was just there and ready yeah. uh, for use. So. Excellent. Excellent. I, and I do have some follow-up questions for that, but I'm going to actually move on because um, I do want to get to your analyst badge story. Uh, for those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is the career defining case or project that an analyst works. And for you, it's about 2010 and you're dealing with a homicide, but once again, you have found yourself in a situation where you've had your personal curiosity has kind of influenced where the direction that this case goes. So story that folks that I've worked with, particularly those of the Sheriff's Department know or, or know at least big parts of, but not something that I've ever gone out and tried to tell or make a big presentation on. But Jason, as you said, one that kind of like other experiences in my career, everything 
everything that I did kind of came together. So in 2010, I was at San Diego Sheriff's Department as a crime analysis manager. By the way, during the introduction, you said crime and intelligence analysis at San Diego Sheriff. I managed the crime analysis. Intelligence at that point okay. was still was still a separate function, but we were allied and worked closely together. But people would care about the title. So just add that clarification. So I was the crime analysis manager. And in February of 2010, came home from work one day. I live in an area on the north side of the city of San Diego that, and I got a little open space and some trails down behind my house. And when I got home at about six or so at night, I walked out in the backyard and it was at that time of year already pretty dark. And I could hear somebody yelling the name Chelsea down on the trails. And I didn't know who or, or what this couple with a flashlight was looking for. And so I called down to them, uh, you know, 170 yards or so. What are you looking for? And they said that teenage jogger was missing on the trail. And I asked them if they had called the police and they said, yes. I said, all right. I went back in the house and told my wife, I'm going to go out on the trails and help look, you know, what that couple didn't know. But what my wife and I knew was that just a couple of months earlier, there had been a jogger that was attacked on the trail right behind our house uh, the previous December. And I knew that because when it happened and the helicopter came around and et cetera, et cetera, the San Diego cop that had been my first FTO uh, actually showed up as the senior officer on that. And uh, I walked down the trail with him and met with the woman that had been attacked. And she walked us through me as the guy that lived at the top of the hill, listening alongside uh, the officer that was taking the report. So I had you know, a very clear understanding of what exactly had happened the previous December. It was a case ultimately that that didn't get uh, very much follow-up at the time. So I went down on the trails that dark night on, in February of 2010 and went to a couple of the obvious places that if a jogger was injured and, and couldn't jog any further, they would be waiting. And then I went back to where the attack had occurred the previous December and kind of stood there and said, all right, I know what happened in December. If it's the same criminal looking for the same opportunity, where would I have attacked today and, and, and where would I have gone? And I got this, just not looking for a person at that point, but looking for indications. And I, I went the path that I thought made the most sense. And on the trail side found girls' underwear and some footies. Long story short, that underwear had DNA of Chelsea King and man that killed her on it. And that was the DNA evidence that identified the killer, John Gardner, who is in prison for the murder of Chelsea King now. But so when I, I came on that evidence down over the side of the trail where it looked to me like somebody had left the trail, I called San Diego PD because I live in their jurisdiction and asked for a field evidence tech to come out because it looked to me like this there was likely serious crime had occurred or worse. And San Diego PD sent out a cop. And while I was waiting, I got a call from one of my academy mates who was a sergeant in Poway. And she said that she was at a search command post that they had just set up for Chelsea King over at a community park that was about a mile and a half away, but it was the other end of the same trail system. So that started that started the whole uh, ball rolling over the next several days. Back to the uh, TKO system, tracking known offenders. We used that system, the the uh, analysts on the team used that system to support uh, what was going on. I was involved a little bit. I had gone to the uh, undersheriff from the command and, and asked, you know, that I'd be able to do my job, even though I was a community member and, and had kind of involved myself in the case, you know, out of my own response from my house to the couple 
uh, looking for Chelsea. But I also wanted to make it clear that I knew that I would be investigated or be a person of interest in the case. And so as I was person of interest in the case at that point, the undersheriff, my commander cleared the way so that I was still leading the crime analysis team, but there were just some things that I didn't participate in that the homicide team was was engaged in. So a lo- very, very mm-hmm. large scale, very, very large scale search started out and analysts got us analysts assigned to the incident, to search command post using their mapping and other stuff. And I worked up based on my knowledge of the area where the likely places to look and search uh, that I would recommend, and then started chewing on the the known offender data. And obviously the sex crimes data is kind of the obvious thing. And the different agencies that supported the search came out and did follow-ups on all those offenders, et cetera, et cetera. And while that didn't really net anything on the first day or two afterwards, what I, I looked at the known offender data, and because we had main tracking known offenders so much easier and accessible, I asked questions kind of out beyond. And, and one of the questions that I asked was, between the attack that had occurred in December and that Chelsea's disappearance in February, who moved, who had a change of address, right? I, I could reach back mm-hmm. in time because we had, we had that time dimension to our offender data. And so I found two offenders that were generally in the area that had moved. One of them had moved out of county, but just outside of the county between December and February. And that offender was John Gardner, who Mm. ended up being the killer. But when I looked at it, John Gardner's address in December was also the closest address to another missing teenager uh, from earlier the previous year. Mm. And when I saw that, I I recognized the area. Then I kind of I took him forward to the to the command of the homicide team and said, "There's shorter list of two people here. They're outside of the current search radius for sex offenders. Kind of the follow up that was underway, but this person in particular needs attention." And it was shortly after that that I was told that that was on Saturday. And then a little bit later in Saturday afternoon, the undersheriff uh, came and got me and said that the DNA had just been off of the clothing that I had found and that the DNA had, in fact, identified John Gardner as that offender. So we knew already at that point that uh, there's a not just a direct connection to the ongoing search for Chelsea, but that by proximity, he was a sex offender that had been very close to a location where uh, another teenage girl had gone missing the previous year. And ultimately, we had an incident command post, a lot of other stuff going on. Obviously, when John Gardner's DNA came back, then I kind of the, the parameters and barriers were taken uh, off of me. I was no longer the uh, first person of interest in the case, but it, it let us lean into other stuff. And ultimately, John Gardner did admit uh, to and provide the location to the body of the the previously missing girl who was still carried as a missing uh, person mm. and uh, traded uh, the location of her uh, body where he had buried her for not having a capital case for the murder of uh, Chelsea. Mm. So in this instance, DNA did its job. In parallel, we did our jobs. For me, I would say it's my bad story because it was me not, I had turned myself into a customer of my own data to bring that kind of idea full circle because the things that we had we, 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 we had put together a San Diego sheriff to improve the way we provided analysis as a service to law enforcement ultimately served my community that I lived in with my wife and my, and my daughter. 
and helped to bring closure more quickly to two different families whose daughters had been uh, taken from them and murdered. It can sound like a DNA story, but I'll tell you, DNA affirmed and let us move more quickly, but analytically, John Gardner out of that TKO data popped up and became a focus uh, because of that. So how did you get his DNA to be able to test it against the evidence? I found panties and footies down the side, over the side of the trail. And mm-hmm. when I called when I called San Diego police, I called and identified myself. Dispatcher also knew who I was because I was former San Diego PD and asked for a field evidence tech. One of my former partners showed up and uh, he collected the evidence. In San Diego, patrol, some patrol cops are trained as a field evidence tech for processing crime scenes at a, at a kind of a higher level than the standard. And so Gary Hildreth, partner, showed up and he collected the evidence and went to the crime lab, went to the crime lab at San Diego PD, and then San Diego Sheriff requested it be transferred over to the San Diego Sheriff's Crime Lab where they did an initial DNA run and then got that evidence directly to the state lab the next day because San Diego PD or San Diego Sheriff had an initial hit and then the state crime lab um, affirmed that uh, oh. hit that the identification and this was a this at this point this was a this had reached a very high profile uh in the community it was an active search for a missing teenager and there was a lot of focus on it that folks didn't know that that this part was going on behind the scenes so why there why here why not there john gardner had originally gone to prison for sexual assault on a middle school girl in my neighborhood and his mom still lived in and john gardner's life while he lived in other claimed other addresses and other stuff like that he apparently was a regular visitor back to uh, my neighborhood and again you know had he also admitted guilt by the way to the attack on the uh, woman right behind my house um, in the the previous december so it was the two murders and an attempted rape um, that uh, he ended up going to prison for okay so because of his earlier conviction of the middle schooler the the DNA was on file then? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So okay. he he was, as it turns out, he was a registered sex offender. He was my neighborhood's boogeyman all along, even though we didn't know it. And I I'll say to you and to your audience the same thing that I've said to folks, other folks that I've worked with. Some someday, somehow, some way, I will help to bring closure to what I believe are other families out there who lost family members at John Gardner's hand, who to this day still have their family members simply listed as missing. Mm-hmm. I think he did more than what we caught him for. Huh. All the skills of supporting a large-scale search, right, making that transition to the missing persons type search, the collection of skills that analysts use when they're going through some of the types of things that uh, we do for uh, supporting NECMEC and a lot of the known offender and sex mm-hmm. crimes offender analysis, all the calls for service and crime, all the community context uh, type stuff is what the team did during that time. And not just San Diego sheriffs and the folks that, that uh, on the team that, that I worked with signed to the different roles across that, but also our colleagues at the San Diego police. It in this instance, you know, and a lot of time has passed now, but it was a it was a, a remarkable allied effort to bring the right information together and to consider all the unknowns while a few knowns were being worked on. And and I knew that there was likely a DNA angle on it. Uh, most of the other folks didn't 
but it was really the analysis that closed the loop. And ultimately, it was analysis that also, in parallel, identified the offender. So story is, people can come back on a case and go, yeah, we got DNA, we got DNA. Well, don't sit back and wait on it. Lean, lean into the analysis. And in this instance, if, if we hadn't discovered uh, or looked at other things like his proximity to the other missing girl, he, he would not likely have copped to it if not confronted with it, right? So we, our information not just empowered the missing uh, person's case, but also the investigative and prosecutorial process because they were able to confront John Gardner with things that then compelled him to start bargaining for his life mm -hmm. after being the monster that took others. Man. All right. Well, hey, I'm going to try to move on from that, but just to, just to move on, I'm I'm curious, uh, and we're going a little long on time, so I do appreciate all your time here, Kurt. Sure. So you move on from the sheriff's department and get into the private sector and as a consultant. And I'm just, we talk a lot on this show about public and private sector, and you've been doing it long enough now that just trying to get a gauge. Was it a, a big transition for you to go from into the private sector? To me, uh, again, it felt a very natural mm -hmm. transition, I would say in large part because my transition from government role to private sector was to work with the Esri public safety team and really to focus on uh, California and, and the West for the use of ArcGIS in policing, fire, and emergency management. So I I kind of stepped laterally from the government role to the Esri role, where the relationships, the credibility, and the relationships and everything are are and continue to be strong over all these years. Esri's as as folks who've gone to all the conferences, Jason, that you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. No, often, oftentimes Esri's has been a just a consistent supporter of conferences. John Beck has ensured that that has has remained in place over the years, and a lot of folks listening to this call may have even worked a or ILEA booth at the uh, Public Safety Showcase at uh, Esri User Conference every year. Mm -hmm. So different stuff like that. So. For me, it was a it was an easy transition. There were a lot of people I already knew, and a lot of the work on the policing side, uh, the policing focus for Esri was one where I I knew a lot of the folks in the analyst field. So I had been during when I was at Redlands and during time at San Diego Sheriff, I had I had obviously been a close participant in the regional crime and intelligence analyst associations for the Inland Empire and the San Diego region, and through that had also served as the state president, so and, and been to the state conferences and everything. So showing up as the Esri guy, nobody gave me a hard time for being the vendor in the room, but I it certainly felt like oh, I, I I was very self conscious in making that transition. But on reflection, it was pretty smooth. All right, nice. Not to make you feel old, but you, as I mentioned in the intro, you've been thirty plus years been around this business. One question I like to ask from time to time is, what are you surprised the law enforcement analysis profession hasn't figured out yet? Maybe you thought when you started in the 90s, oh, by 2024, we'll have this figured out, and yet we're still struggling with the same issue. Oh, again, it's a people business. Uh, so I think mm -hmm. it's not, I'm not surprised by the technology mm -hmm. stuff. 
Um, I'll answer with two things. On the technology side, I'm surprised that the federal or state departments of justice have not just stopped funding CAB and RMS implementations that don't have at least the common data schema mm. to some set of common standards and, and leave all that to, to get figured out by everybody else downstream. Mm -hmm. So there's that. I think in the profession, I'm, I'm surprised that we still haven't really reconciled titles and roles. Mm. Um, and I know that, I know it varies a lot by department, not, believe me, uh, in the departments that I've worked in, but with departments I've worked with in the, in the uh, private sector time that I've had, it's remarkable how much that takes energy and attention in different places over the years. So the, the I'm a this and you're just a that kind of bullshit, it's got to go away. Um, mm. Embrace each other as professionals, support each other in our common cause, and put the energy toward closing the gaps that the uh, worst of the worst offenders operate within. So, I mean, I, I think that that's probably been resolved in a few places, but I think it's still something that is a struggle across the, the whole profession. Yeah. And if I'm not being, if I'm not being clear enough, I'm talking about prime analyst and Intel analyst mm -hmm. title titles and roles. Yeah. And I'm not yeah, yeah, yeah. making, I'm not making judgments either way. SA called me an intelligence analyst. Law enforcement has called me a crime analyst done lots of different things and supported people doing different things. And when your neighborhood's boogeyman uh, comes to roost, you need all the analysts providing services to your law enforcement agency to get beyond the bullshit and get the job done. Nice. All right. How about what's next? I would uh, like to get your thoughts on one question I usually ask my guests is return on investment. What analysts can study now because five or so years from now, it's going to be important. So, but I'm curious from your vantage point, given to how you were ahead of the curve back in the nineties and the aughts, like, what do you think now? What, what do you think is coming down the pipe? Increasing your flexibility and your skills for handling data. Scripting is the new querying, right? We used to mm -hmm. get focused on uh, queries and, or we all have always been focused on how best to query our data, but get exposed to some scripting, get exposed to R, get exposed to how data gets moved from one structured environment to another structured environment, or how data gets moved from an unstructured environment to a structured environment, and give give yourself the opportunity to, to understand that. And it, it will help you translate in what you're doing or what you need to do, either directly or as you collaborate with somebody that's in more of a data scientist role or as a in a, a database administrator a dba role from your it team more more of a statistical view through r but increasingly getting some python scripting or if you really like jumping in deep on the arcgis side do it in uh, uh, arcade scripting is 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 already the way but it's not as broadly known and broadly engaged as, as it will need to be down the road to be really successful with large data sets. Very good. All right, Kurt, I want to thank you for being my 2000, I mean, 2000, 200th, <laughs> 200th episode guest. Great stories today. Great to get your perspective. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. 
I'm going to go into words to the world now, and this is where I give the guests the last word. You can promote any idea that you wish. Kurt, what are your words to the world? Jason, first of all, I'll, that I'll take that as an invitation to be the 2000, 2000, and I'll come back to that, I promise you. I'm going to come back full circle to we can't control this world, but we can control how well we treat each other beyond the technology, beyond all the data, beyond all the things that we deal with. If you're listening to this, you're likely someone who's made a commitment to law enforcement analysis as a profession. Look to others in your profession. Look to the teammates that you work with. Treat each other well. Expect to treat each other well. Be open to and learn from each other. Uh, embrace the people around you that are not in your your profession and learn from them by treating them well and expecting them to treat you well. And let's get down the road together. There's bad stuff and bad people and evil in this world. And we can we can make a difference through the work that we do, but we'll make more of a difference if we treat each other well. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you. You've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. Hey, right on. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Kurt. Thank you so much at UPSEC. Jason, thanks so much. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.